listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org or find us on social media. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. Our teaching text today comes from Matthew 9, verses 5 to 38, Matthew 10, verses 1, and verses 5 to 13. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. These 12 apostles Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Do not get any gold or silver or copper to take with you in your belts. No bag for the journey or extra shirt or sandals or a staff, for the worker is worth his keep. Whatever town or village you enter, search there for some worthy person and stay at their house until you leave. As you enter their home, give it your greeting. If the home is deserving, let your peace rest on it. If it is not, let your peace return to you. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Awesome. Y'all can take a seat. Thanks for that. Can I be honest with y'all? Has anybody ever said no to that question? It's like, yeah, pastor, please begin your sermon by lying to me. That sounds really great. Uh, I was supposed to preach this sermon on the morning of June 18th, and you may remember June 18th. Uh, I remember June 18th because at 12 a.m. on the 18th, I was helping my family shelter in place downstairs. And at 1 a.m., I was finding buckets around our house because we had lost our roof. And at 2 a.m., I was completing an insurance claim, hoping to be top of the pile. And at 3 a.m., I was praying to God, please help me be ready to preach this sermon because I'm supposed to be talking about Jesus as a good shepherd, and I do not feel very shepherded right now. (laughs) And in that, truly, I think what God invited me into the past two weeks was to live this sermon before I preached it to you all this morning. And so I hope it can minister to you as it's ministered to me. We're going to be at the tail end of Matthew chapter 9, beginning of chapter 10, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. And the first thing I want us to look at is 935. So this is kind of a summary statement Matthew is giving us on the ministry of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 9, we've zoomed in on the ministry of Jesus. We've seen a couple specific episodes of miraculous works. We're panning back out here to an overview of what Jesus is accomplishing. And the text says, Jesus went throughout all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, 
proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. And I want you to see two things that are happening in the text. One is that the ministry of Jesus is marked by authority. So he's going place to place. He's proclaiming the good news of his kingdom from a position of authority, of power. But it's not just that Jesus is talking about what this kingdom will look like. It's not just an idea to him. He's bringing an inbreaking of this kingdom with him everywhere he goes. He's casting out demons, he's healing the sick, he's remedying afflictions, he's offering us a foretaste of what he's talking about. And in this ministry of Jesus, we get this moment where in Matthew 9, 36, we get insight into how Jesus feels as he's going about this ministry. So 9:36 says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And in a sense, this feels really par for the course for Jesus' ministry. I think if we were to try to summarize what Jesus does in his earthly ministry, we could sum it up in one word, being compassion. And compassion is more than feeling sorry for somebody else. It's more than empathy. It's having pity on somebody and that pity driving you to act. And in that sense, Jesus' whole ministry is compassion. He incarnates, he becomes human in order that he might be made like us, that he could help us out of our sin-ridden estate. Which makes me wonder, why does Matthew make the space here to comment on Jesus as being compassionate? Because we should probably assume that he is. And I think what's going on in this moment is as Jesus looks out at the sea of people who have come to him because they have pressing needs, he is struck in his heart as to how great their need is. And if you just take a moment to consider what the makeup of a crowd looked like in Jesus' day, these are people who they are free in the middle of their day to follow an itinerant speaker in hopes that something good will happen to them. This is their equivalent of buying a lottery ticket. They're hoping, I want to be let out of my current situation because of whatever is affecting me, and I'm hoping I can get close enough to Jesus to make that happen. Jesus, he looks at these people and he conceives of them as harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. And these descriptors, they're helpful for us. Harassed is that they're beat upon from without. That from outside of them, the systems of this world, the sins of other people, the afflictions, diseases, the fallen state of our reality presses them down. And in that place, they find themselves helpless, They're unable to muster up the agency to meaningfully affect change in their own lives. And all of us spiritually find ourselves in the position of these crowds. All of us find ourselves harassed and helpless. And this is something I felt very keenly in the past two weeks. We had this moment where we were sheltering downstairs in our home, and I heard our smoke alarm going off. I thought, that's weird. And I went upstairs to turn our smoke alarm off, and as I put my hand up to press the reset button, I realized water was pouring out of it. And I thought, that's probably not good. And I looked around at all the other light fixtures and they too were pouring water out into our home. And in that moment, I was harassed by something outside of me and I was helpless by something much larger than me. Even if I knew what to do in that situation, which still haven't figured out the protocol, I was not able to do anything to meaningfully affect change. And what I wanted in that moment, what I think we want in that moment where we find ourselves set upon by things outside of ourselves, or we find ourselves feeling helpless, what I wanted was to be empowered. 
I wanted God to make me like him so I could affect the change that I think needed to happen in that moment. And it's really interesting to me that as Jesus looks out at this crowd and he sees them as harassed and helpless, the thing that comes into his mind is not, wow, these people need to be empowered. Instead, he conceives that what they need is a shepherd. They need to come under the care of a shepherd. And shepherding is a really common illustration throughout the Bible, right? We, the people of God, are conceived of as God's flock. We're precious to him. And because we are precious to him, because we belong to him, he cares for us. He watches out for us. He fulfills this role of protecting us from the harassments of this world and helping us in the midst of our helplessness. But what I found in that moment is I don't want to be a sheep. Being a sheep is hard. I have to rely on somebody else caring for me, and that's not what I want. I think you guys can think about this for yourselves too, of times in which you've been pressed upon and what you want in that moment is to be emancipated from the smallness of being human. You want to be made like God, but Jesus, in seeing these crowds and feeling his heart break because they have real need, he conceives that their solution will not be found in a moment of empowerment, but will be in coming under shepherding. And so the first thing I want you to see in this text is we answer the problems of this world not in becoming independent from God, but by submitting ourselves to the care of a good shepherd. So that's where the text begins. Matthew is telling us this is how Jesus feels about the people he's ministering to. And he's offered up a solution really early in his text. What they need is a shepherd, but he very quickly introduces a problem. So this is 937. The text reads, Then he said to his disciple, disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So Jesus is looking out at the sea of people, and he's seeing the volume of need here is great. And I mean, you can picture this in your head, right? The image that he uses of fields ripe for harvest. I want you to imagine a tree in your mind with fruit on the branches, apples ripe for the picking, and there's no one there to pull them off, and they're rotting and withering on the branch. And that's what Jesus conceives of when he thinks of these people who have turned out in mass because they need help. They are rotting on the branch of life. And Jesus aches for them. He longs for them. But what is really interesting to me is what I would expect Jesus to do in this moment is to enlist the disciples in some kind of crowd control. Hey, there's all these people pressing in on me. I want you to help me form a single file line so I can go lay hands on each and every one of these people. And maybe we'd get kind of a gospel twist and he'd say, I'll start at the back of the line instead of the front. Last will be first, first will be last. But that's not what we see. Instead of Jesus having his disciples function as a crowd control, two really important things happen. One is he gives an instruction that they would pray, and they're praying for workers, meaning Jesus conceives of their solution ultimately coming under a shepherd not as being accomplished by him personally, but by other people who he will enlist to accomplish this work. And first, I want us to think about prayer. The first thing that Jesus asks his disciples to do is to pray. And I think oftentimes for us, prayer does not feel like real work. So to rewind into my little saga of our home issues, that same night, it was about two in the morning, my wife Hannah and I were standing in our laundry room. There's two inches of standing water. We're looking into the backyard and we think, oh my gosh, that's so crazy. Somebody else's roof is in our backyard. <laughs> and then we realize, oh, that's our roof. 
And in that moment, I'm trying to figure out, what do you do when your roof is off of your house? Do I try to take pieces back up and put it on? Hannah told me I wasn't allowed to do that. But in that place, Hannah turned to me, and she very wisely said, we should pray. And everything in me thought, what good will prayer do? <laughs> how, how will prayer help this roof situation? But it's very interesting to me, Jesus is in a situation where his heart is breaking on behalf of these people who have very real afflictions, and his first thought is, we should pray. We should pray about this. Because prayer is the ministry that we are called into. Prayer is the real work. To take the example away from myself, for last month we were doing a renewal push for a school that we sponsor in Lebanon serving Syrian refugees. And we had prayer cards throughout the month of June in the lobby. And this is one of those things where I think in an American mindset, what we can get in the habit of doing is, okay, I've identified a problem. I've identified a solution. Let's just go do it. What do I need prayer for? And with those refugees that are coming into Lebanon, there's a sense in which we could say something like, okay, these people need structure. They need education. We have the funds. Let's go build a school. And we could just go do the work. And in that sense, you could view what we were doing in the lobby, asking people to pray with us for these students as kind of a thin Christian veneer coding the real work of charity. But that misunderstands that ultimately what we are after is the care of a shepherd. And what those people need is not just that we would meet them in the harassment and helplessness of their present moment, that they, but instead that they would have somebody who permanently comes over them to care for them. And so when we were issuing a call to prayer, it wasn't just so that we would have a Christian version of charity. It was because we truly believe God's kingdom is work that he is uniquely accomplishing. And any lasting, meaningful change must come through his action. Prayer is our participation, our attuning ourselves to the work that God is accomplishing. I really like the way Eugene Peterson talks about this. He talks about it as prayer as answering speech. So this is from Eugene Peterson. He says, at its root, prayer isn't mere self-expression or a prod to get a silent God to speak. And I do want to say prayer can be self-expression and prayer can be asking God to speak, but that's not all that it is. So he goes on, he says, it's a learned skill to answer God's initiating word in Christ. What we're doing when we pray to God, when Jesus is looking out at this harvest that is plentiful, but the workers who are few, we are looking at, God, you uniquely are accomplishing something here. You must be the one to do it. Will you let me join? Will you, will you let me respond to what you're already doing? And in whatever area we hope to see the inbreaking of God's kingdom, we must begin from a place of dependence. We must begin from a place of prayer. Prayer is what changes this from being me participating in God's work to me building a brand for our church. It's recognizing God has to do something that I cannot do. And Cornerstone, I want to ask you, how can prayer, as Jesus' immediate response, be instructive for you? Because I have a feeling you probably feel in the course of life similar to how I felt in my laundry room of, what good will prayer do? I'm already harassed. <laughs> I'm already helpless. But how can Jesus' insistence that we begin in prayer be instructive to you? To, so maybe there are some of you in here who you think you can do things without God. 
If you find yourself inclined to think that you can do things by your own efforts, I want you to remember Jesus calls us first to pray. All of us rest under the care of a good shepherd. We cannot do anything apart from what he's doing. Now, maybe it's not that you think you can do things apart from him. It's that you feel like you must do things apart from him. That God requires something of you that he won't equip you for. And if you feel this way, I want to remind you, all of us are under the care of a good shepherd. You must not do anything on your own. In everything, in prayer, we depend upon a God who will give us direction and help and empowerment. Prayer is instructive for us because in any kingdom-bringing work, in any resolution to our harassment and helplessness, what we see is it's dependent work, but it's good news because we depend on a shepherd who can satisfy us. So where we are in our text, what we've seen is Jesus has looked out at these crowds, his heart is broken for them, and he conceives what they need is a shepherd, but there aren't enough people, let's pray, and we're left wondering who then will be sent. And paradoxically, what happens in our text is the very people who were asked to pray become the means by which God answers the prayer. They become the ones who are sent out. And once again, this is something that we experienced this week. We had so many people praying for us, and these people in turn became the people who offered things to us very generously. We had people from Cornerstone put us up in an Airbnb. We'd people give to us financially. All of my wife's clothes were ruined and she has a whole new wardrobe already. We had neighbors offer to babysit for us so we could have a date night. And while we were out at our date, a cornerstoner saw us and paid for our meal. There have been so many ways in which God has been abundantly generous already by his people who have been enlisted in prayer, but not only prayer, but also to do the work. And this moment in the text, I think it can strike us a little bit funny. It feels kind of like Jesus is doing a little bit of a gotcha moment. Like he turns to his disciples and he says, I want you to pray for workers. Just kidding, you're the workers. But I actually don't think that's what's going on here. And this is one of those things. So if we've already conceived of the crowds as kind of this fringe group, they're needy, they follow the ministry of Jesus, hoping to get something from him. If we go from the crowds inward, we see there's a network of disciples throughout the gospel. But these disciples are not just the capital D 12 disciples. So throughout the gospels, we see kind of this running background of people who would be rightly described as disciples. They're learners of Jesus. They're followers of Jesus. They view him as their rabbi, but it's a broader network than the 12. And probably what's going on in this moment is Jesus is addressing this broader group of disciples, and he says to them, I want all of you to pray. And then from this broader group, he draws out 12. And this is a moment of significance for the ministry of Jesus. I probably don't need to explain this to you a ton, But Jesus is being very intentional in how he is selecting 12 people. He is intentionally modeling his ministry after the 12 tribes of Israel. He is, in effect, communicating to the watching world, this is the new people of God under the new covenant. And this would have been a slap in the face to the standing religious establishment of Jesus' day. So y'all know I'm from Texas, And at any given moment in time, there is somebody who is advocating that Texas should secede from the United States. 
And I'm not here to debate the pros and cons of that whole thing. But what Jesus is doing, it would feel similar to not just if Texas went out and said, we're going to break away from the rest of you, but if they rounded up 12 other states and said, like the original 13 colonies, we're going to break away and form a better union. That's the level of kind of potential pride that Jesus could be viewed as having in cultivating 12 apostles, 12 sent ones, 12 messengers or envoys. And I want us to read here in 10.1 what the text says. 10.1 says, Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and he gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and every sickness. And what's significant about this moment in the text isn't so much the specific work that he has given his disciples to do, but instead that this is verbatim the way that Jesus' ministry was described in 935. What Matthew wants us to see is that the ministry of the apostles is the ministry of Jesus. They bring his message, they bring his authority, they bring his power, they are his sent ones. And just a moment ago, I was referencing my initial expectation in thinking about Jesus being pressed in by crowds is that he would activate the disciples as a kind of crowd control. But what we see in Jesus commissioning these apostles who will become the foundation of his church is that Jesus has larger sights than just us being crowd control so that more people can get to him. It's that we would be sent with his authority and power, that we would conduct the very ministry of Jesus. What Jesus is doing here is, in effect, reinstating our vocation as image bearers of God. So if you think all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2, God graciously invites Adam and Eve in his creation to be co-participators with what he is doing, bringing order out of chaos. He says to them, fill the earth and subdue it. Be like me, order creation alongside me. And what Jesus is doing in this moment, in the midst of our sheepishness, in the midst of our frailty and helplessness, is he's inviting us back into our original vocation. He's saying, I want you to bring my kingdom alongside me. I want you to be co-laborers in this work that I'm engaging in, this foretaste, this inbreaking of the thing that I'm announcing and that I'm doing. And with all of this, it's a unique moment in the history of the church, the commissioning of the 12 apostles. And I don't know if this text has any meaning to you or in your church history, Whenever I get to Matthew 10, I always think about my friend Joel Burnham. So do you all know what proof texting is? Like if I want to prove something to you theologically, I find one passage of scripture that seems to say what I'm saying. And Matthew 10 gets used and abused as a proof text on how to evangelize. I always think about my friend Joel. He grew up in a very strict Christian household. And his family, in a desire to honor God and take his word seriously, they looked at Matthew 10 and they let it shape what their home looked like in that every Friday, Joel had a lot of siblings, they would pair all the siblings up. So they'd go in twos and they were given no food or water for the day. And they were told to go door to door to evangelize to people in the spirit of Matthew 10. And understandably, Joel has some trauma <laughs> about this passage. But I think a lot of well-meaning Christians come to a passage like this and they're trying to say, okay, we've been called the sent ones. We're supposed to be spreading the kingdom. Let's apply these things. And I want to take just a moment to make some comments on the uniqueness of this moment in Jesus's ministry because he sends these people out to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. 
which can feel a little odd. If we're familiar with the ministry of Jesus, maybe we're thinking something like, I thought the gospel was for all people, Jews, Gentiles, Samaritans. Why is he limiting their scope? And actually, what's going on here, it's not ethnic favoritism that Jesus is showing. What he's doing in this moment, remember, he's ministering in Galilee, this region in the north of Israel. He's setting a geographical boundary for them. They're in this pocket of Galilee, and he's saying to them, don't go to these other places. Well, why not? Well, one is because Jesus has been engaging in a public ministry in Galilee already. So he's telling his apostles, I want you to go to the same towns and cities that I've already been to. These people are primed. These people are ready to make a decision. The kingdom of heaven is drawing near. Are you in or are you out? But even further than that, if we zoom out a little bit, Jesus is sending them to people who are predominantly Jews, meaning that they ought to have an expectation of a coming Messiah. They ought to be ready to make a response. And all of this sits in a backdrop in Matthew's gospel of the imminent destruction of the temple. So there will come in 70 AD the destruction of the temple in which the people of Israel will be scattered. And so Jesus is inviting his apostles at a unique moment in history to minister to the gathered people of God, the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And I'm kind of belaboring that point because I want you to see there are principles we can draw from this text, but I don't think Matthew wants us to literally say, let's fast, pair up, and go door to door. This is a unique moment in time. So what do we do with it if those are all the things we don't do? I think we could if we wanted to draw some principles out of the text of who might be the lost sheep of the house of Israel in our own day and age. And we could make some moves to say something like, well, maybe the lost sheep of the house of Israel are those who were part of the church before COVID and they've kind of drifted out of church attendance in the interim. They're people who are primed and ready to receive the gospel. Or maybe they're people who, they're nominally Christian. They would identify as Christian, but they don't seem to follow Jesus in a meaningful sense. Maybe we could think of them as the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And I think those could be legitimate applications. But the thing that really strikes me in looking at this text is what breaks Jesus' heart to begin with. It's that there is a group of people who find themselves harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And so Cornerstone, as we think about what does it mean for us as the church of God to be sent ones, to be participating in the ministry of Jesus, I want you to think right now, who do I know that is harassed and helpless? Who do I know that needs the comfort of a shepherd? And there's been a trend in evangelism in the past 10 to 15 years that I think has been a good trend, where we've started moving away from more of like a tract-based evangelism or kind of a gotcha question evangelism, the kind of thing where you go to somebody and you say, if you die tonight, do you know where you're going? And I think there may be a place for a question like that. My fear in that style of evangelism, it can be reductionary. It can make the gospel simply fire insurance of, hey, do you not want to go to hell? then believe this thing. And the gospel is so much bigger than that. It's so much bigger than saying, I don't want to go to hell. I guess I'll believe this thing. There's been this trend in evangelism away from that style towards evangelism through hospitality, which I think is a really healthy move for the church to make. This idea that I want to invite people into my home, around my dinner table, and there I want to share the love of Christ with them tangibly. 
I think that's a good move for us to make because I think it implicitly communicates the value of being invited into the family of God, which is what is happening in the gospel. We're invited into a new family. We're given a new vocation. This kingdom-bringing work is we're empowered by the Spirit. And what's really interesting to me about how Jesus commissions out these apostles, they are sent, but the script is flipped. It's a hospitality ministry, but he tells them, you are to rely on the hospitality of those you will be sent to. Which is really interesting to me because there are people who are lost, there are people who are harassed and helpless, and they are ripe. They want the kingdom, and yet they will never enter into the life of the church. This was made really clear for me. I had a friend who was ministering to some Afghani refugees in Dallas, a group of young women, and we were part of a small group. And this friend was realizing we can't invite these Afghani women to participate in the life of our small group because everything we do is co-ed. And they cannot be in a co-ed space. It's culturally inappropriate for them. And so for her, it became this thing of, if I want to share the hope of the gospel with them, I have to go to them. I have to be part of their world. I can't just open up a seat at my table. I have to go be part of their table, which can be an uncomfortable thing. It can be an uncomfortable thing to be on the receiving end of hospitality, but that's the posture that Jesus asks his disciples to adopt. There's this whole language towards the end of the passage about a worthy house. And what Jesus is communicating there is find people who want to invite you in and there share with them about the hope of your good shepherd. Cornerstone, what I want you to hear is that the church becomes the means by which Jesus relieves these harassed and helpless sheep. Jesus, in his heartbreaking, he doesn't overfunction. He doesn't say, line everybody up so I can go lay a hand on them. He commissions us to act on his behalf. And that is an incredible thing. To kind of close us out here, I don't think I need to convince anybody here of the harassed and helpless estate we find ourselves in in this world. That part of the passage, I think, rings really clear and true. But what I think we do need convincing of, and what I want you to hear, is it is not a good sheep, air quotes there, who graduates from the care of his shepherd. It's not an expectation that when a sheep completes grade 12, they go start their own flock. A sheep is forever a sheep, no matter how good the sheep and no matter how good the shepherd And when Jesus conceives of us as his sheep, what he is communicating to us is our life in Christ will be lived in dependence upon him. And that's a good thing. It's a thing that we can rest in. It means that we know that we are cared for in the midst of harassment, in the midst of feeling helpless. It means that I don't need to overfunction. I can, from a posture of prayer and dependence, rely upon God to do the work that he has already begun in his son. And what a beautiful place for us to be resting in that as we function as the sent ones. His church, those who look out with Jesus at the crowds and say to them, hey, Jesus' heart is breaking for you. Will you rest under the care of a good shepherd? So with that, will y'all pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the many ways that it challenges me. (laughs) It challenges your people. It reshapes expectations. And God, as strange as it is to say it, I know for myself, I thank you that I was able to live in a harassed and helpless place these past two weeks that I might further understand how you provide care. And God, I pray for anyone in this room 
regardless of where it's coming from, who is feeling harassed or helpless, I pray that they would know that in you, they have a good shepherd. And more than that, Holy Spirit, I ask if there is anyone that you would call to our minds right now who we know is harassed and helpless and in need of a shepherd, would you encourage us, would you embolden us to think of what would it look like for us to go to them as sent ones? We ask that you would lead us and guide us, and we ask expectantly, knowing that your arm is not too short to save. It's the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. We're so grateful you listened to this week's sermon at Cornerstone. If you live in the Tulsa area, we'd love to invite you to be a part of our worship community in person. You can find service times and more information at our website. But wherever you are, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you peace.